if you listen to this podcast, and obviously you do, I have to believe that you love books, you love stories, you love reading. So my question for you is, do you remember where and when that seed got planted? Do you remember when you went, oh, oh, this is a magical portal. I love this. I love books. I love to read. I do. And that's what I want to celebrate in this episode of the podcast. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And today it's a solo episode. I think this is probably the first solo episode I've done. It's also the hundredth episode of the uh, podcast. It's not the hundredth interview because we've had a few from the archives, um, from the vaults uh, series, but it is our hundredth episode. So hurrah, celebrating that. And I thought I would celebrate it by talking about some of the books. So it's certainly one of the books that was the starting point of the journey for me. And it's really appropriate that I'm recording it here and now. Um, I'm actually in Australia as I record this. I'm literally in my childhood bedroom. <laughs> this is this is where I, I hid under the covers at night, the little torch, trying to read the books that I wanted to read. And uh, the truth is, I, I was a fast reader early on. Like I was reading before I was five and went to primary school. Um, and um, unlike some kids, you know, where it's like you have to really struggle and learn to read, I, apparently I just picked it up and I'm like, oh, I love this right from the start. Now it almost got extinguished. It's just down the road. It's about a 150-yard walk down the road from, from where I live here in Torrens. Torrens is a suburb of Canberra. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a kind of driven first child, want to achieve, love learning. So I was doing okay at primary school. But Mrs. Sibley was the librarian at the Torrens Primary School Library. She might have liked books. She certainly liked order and control. She certainly disliked kids liking books. <laughs> so there was a perpetual battle, it felt like, between me and Mrs. Sibley. And did she almost extinguish my love of reading? Well, that's probably overstating it. But she was a barrier to me learning to love and to read books early on. But when I think of the books that that shaped me, um, I'm, I'm thinking of some series of books that I kind of vanished into. There's a series called All Creatures Great and Small. It's about a, a city vet from England moving up to Yorkshire and kind of finding his way and telling stories around that. Enid Blyton. I was huge on Eaton Blind for a long time. Um, the famous four, the famous, no, the fantastic four. No, there's something four and then the famous five and then the faraway tree. I remember reading the faraway tree, which I suspect isn't even available anymore because it's almost certainly racist and sexist. But it was incredible in terms of opening my mind in terms of what a fantastical other world was about. But if I had to pick one author where I went, this is extraordinary. It would be J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit, author of The Lord of the Rings. And one of the one of the treats of becoming a Rhodes Scholar and going to Oxford University to study was that um, my wife, my wife, girlfriend, now my wife, she actually went to Merton College, which was the college where Tolkien was at. 
So we would go into the gardens of, of Merton College, and that's where he wrote Lord of the Rings. You know, and then he would meet up with his pal C.S. Lewis, Narnia series in the uh, the um, what is it called the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford, where they would talk and share their stories. Eagle and Child, we call it the Bird and Babe or the Fowl and the Fetus. <laughs> it had all sorts of nicknames. But it was kind of magical to be wandering the gardens and thinking, wow, these old trees, these look like ants. So I thought um, for the two pages that I would read to celebrate where the roots of loving stories and loving reading um, really began, in terms of books at least, because I'm also remembering that in this, actually wasn't this my bedroom then, it was the bedroom room next door where I slept with my, my brother Nigel, my dad would tell great stories. So that was another place where stories were planted. And I talk about it that in a, in a, in a recent episode as well. But I'm going to read from The Fellowship of the Ring. So the first book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Lord of the Rings series. And uh, this is the book I read. For those of you who are uh, seeing the video, you'll see that it's an old copy it's um, the Unwin edition from 1974. I've got a price here in the UK only. The price of this book, 75 pence. It's not even a pound, 75% in the UK only. So we might have actually bought this in the UK because uh, in 1975, this is the one big trip my family took. We, we went left Australia and went to England. My dad's English. So we went back to Oxford and back to visit my grandpa and uh, my grandpa and granny, Bob and Maida. Maida actually is a writer. So I feel like me as a writer, I've inherited that from her. I actually named my first company after her. It's called Maida CC. But anyway, that's the background. Let me read the uh, opening pages of this. I'm going to start with the the opening poem that sets the the bigger scene the lord of the rings jr tolkien first published in 1954 this is a 1974 edition with amazing illustrations and runes uh, that tolkien created on the in, built into the design three rings for the elven kings under the sky seven for the dwarf lords and the halls of stone Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. In the Lord of Mordor where the shadows lie. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a start. It's like I don't even know what that's all about but my mind is already blown. And uh, when we move to book one, chapter one, which is the title is called A Long Expected Party, part of what I appreciate about this edition in particular is uh, you've got Tolkien's maps that he's hand-drawn as part of his extraordinary world creation. A Long Expected Party. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar. 
and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folks might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigour to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have very little effect on Mr Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as at 50. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought, hmm, this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. What a setup. What I love about this, and I'll keep reading in a minute, is how quickly we've gone from The Hobbit, which was such a great kid's story and contained, and we're now 60 years down the path. Bilbo is already being set up as a kind of uh, a mentor figure. He's, he's the transition from the old story. But this line, I mean, it, this is the line that sets up the whole story. It will have to be paid for. It isn't natural. and Trouble will come of it. So good. But so far, trouble had not come. And as Mr. Baggins was generous with his money, most people were willing to forgive him his oddities and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, the Sackville Bagginses. And he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families. But he had no close friends until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favourite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was 99, he adopted Frodo as his heir and brought him to live at Bag End, and the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday, September 22nd. You had better come and live here, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo one day, and then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together. At the time, Frodo was still in his tweens, as the hobbits call that irresponsible period between childhood and coming of age at 33. Twelve more years passed. Each year, the Bagginses had given very lively combined birthday parties at Bag End. But now it was understood that something quite exceptional was being planned for that autumn. Bilbo was going to be 111, 111, a rather curious number and a very respectable age for any hobbit. Old Took himself had only reached 130 and Frodo was going to be 33, 33, an important number, the date of his coming of age. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater and rumour of the coming event travelled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mr. Bilbo Baggins became, once again, the chief topic of conversation, and the older folk suddenly found their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than old Hans Gamgee, commonly known as the Gaffer. He held forth at the Ivy Bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for 40 years, and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. 
Now that he himself was growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried on by his youngest son, Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself, at number three Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken, gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared. It's perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite to him, calling him Master Hamfast and consulting him constantly on the growing of vegetables. In the matter of roots, especially potatoes, the gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him, asked Old Noakes of the Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. Beats me why any Baggins of Hobbiton should go looking for a wife away there in Buckland, where folk are so queer. And no wonder they're queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbour. If they live on the wrong side of the Brandywine River, and right again the old forest, ooh, that's a dark, bad place, if half the tales be true. You're right, Dad, said the gaffer. Not that the brandy bucks of Buckland live in the old forest, but they're a queer brand seemingly. They fool about with boats on that big river, and that isn't natural. Small wonder that trouble came of it, I say. But be that as it may, Mr. Frodo is as nice a young hobbit as you could wish to meet, very much like Mr. Bilbo, and in more than looks. After all, his father was a Baggins, a decent, respectable hobbit that was Mr. Drogo Baggins. There was never much to tell of him till he drowned That is the first two pages of The Fellowship of the Ring. Just, uh, you know, I haven't read this, this book for, for decades, so I'm just loving, first of all, the language. You know, it's so beautifully written. But also just the setup, the play it small, play it safe. Oh, it's dangerous by the river. It's dangerous by the forest. They're queer folks. And just that parochialism that Tolkien is seeing and in some ways celebrating. You know, he he was such a champion actually for the kind of the old way of living, the conservative way of living, having been scarred by the industrial brutality of World War II. But um, you also can feel <laughs> the sense of adventure beginning to call the hero's journey where the hero is called across the threshold, that she or he resists the call, but finally goes on the adventure, well, you can feel that we're on the other side of the threshold right now. What this book did for me was twofold, I think. I think it gave me permission to imagine, and and that in itself is a pretty extraordinary gift, um, you know, I write nonfiction books now, but I read a, a large amount of fiction. And partly I love the, the books that take me into another world. I love movies, particularly, you know, if it's a trilogy of movies, I love the first movie because it's where the world creation gets going. And this idea of there are multiple universes, multiple worlds, allows me to be skeptical of this world. Um, you know, part of the bigger work that I try and do at mbs.works and also uh, through boxofcrowns.com as well is to be thinking about how do I try and make this world better? How do I improve it? How do I resist the, the status quo and the way power and privilege and hierarchy 
and expectations and distribution and unfairness happens. And I do feel that there's something about reading fiction and seeing how other worlds are imagined that allows me to say, so I can imagine a different world as part of that. And I think the other way that this book has influenced me is probably just the, the insight that the way you become a good writer is twofold. You read a lot and you write a lot. <laughs> you need to read to learn how other people write, how masters of the game write to develop their skill, to develop, develop their strength, to develop their voice, to, to know how to write with an elegance and a pace that moves people through a story. And you need to write. You need to keep writing because, you know, you, the way to become a good writer is to be a bad writer, first of all. And um, I think this is just one of those early examples of uh, me as a child reading an, an adult book, a book written by an adult for adults, not just for adults, but, but definitely for adults. And just going, I'm, I'm, I'm having a, the first, one of the first layers laid down of this is what good writing looks like. This is what adventure looks like. This is what pace looks like. I think that's it. Um, thank you for being part of Two Pages with MBS. It is a joy to do this podcast. I, uh, I seek out amazing people who inevitably choose thoroughly interesting books. So I feel like in just being the person on this side of the microphone, I get to talk to wonderful people. And I get to hear about books that A, I might know, but I haven't considered through a particular lens before more often, quite frankly, books that I don't know. And I have <laughs> a pile of honestly unread books, mostly, um, from this podcast, which I am, I am inspired by. But thank you for being a listener to it. I mean, I would do this perhaps even without any listeners, but having listeners makes me feel better <laughs> about it. Um, thank you for all you've done to support it, uh, whether that's through a review or passing an episode on or emailing me a nice note or giving it a boost on social media, however you might have championed this in some way and even if that way is purely and only by listening to the episodes that in itself is all i could ask for you're awesome and you're doing great <laughs>